Hello, and welcome to News from the Torah. This is Leah Roney. And today, on the 3rd of May, the 12th day of the Hebrew month of Iyar, we are reading the Torah portion of Emor, which, among other things, deals with the laws of purity for Kohanim. And as with most of these Torah portions that deal in extensive, extensive detail about laws of uh, purity and impurity, ritual purity and impurity, which really doesn't have anything to do with cleanliness or hygiene, but it's a state of being that allows one or does not allow one to come into the temple and partake of certain holy uh, sacrifices in the temple. This is really what, quote-unquote, purity and purity are all about. So um, I always ask myself, how come the Torah, which is eternal, gives us so much detail about these laws that actually have not been practiced for the past 2,000 years? Actually, more than half of the time that passed since the, give, the giving of the Torah, these laws were not relevant and did not apply. And so the Torah gives them in huge, huge details and minute details. And yet the laws of Shabbat, for example, of Sabbath, are given in really in just in, in, in um, almost hints. The laws of Shabbat, which all of the Jewish people have kept every single week for the past 3,000 years, are hinted to in the Torah and not given in any kind of detail. And that seems to be a little bit strange. So I would like to talk about um, a law that actually appears in this week's Torah portion and understand what is the message behind it, and especially what is the message behind it in light of a holiday that is coming up, coming up next week on Tuesday, Lagba Omer. Lagba Omer is a minor holiday. It is practically not celebrated outside of Israel, but in Israel it's a big deal. Lagba Omer is the 33rd day of the counting of the Omer, the counting that we do from Passover to Shavuot. It was a very special time during the time of the temple. And today it is considered more to be the time of spiritual growth and working on one's character. However, this time has also been a time of mourning traditionally because during the time just after the destruction of the second temple, about um, year 150 of common era, a tragedy struck the Jewish people, and 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva, perhaps the greatest sage of the Torah, were uh, passed away within a span of several weeks. From Passover until Lagba Omer, within one month, 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva passed away in one fell swoop. So there is actually a disagreement about what happened. Some sages hold that they died in a plague, but others hold that they died as part of the Bar Kokhba revolts. Bar Kokhba was the head of a revolt against the Romans, and Rabbi Akiva initially supported him. And some scholars say that these 24,000 students passed away as part of the revolts, but one way or the other, if you can imagine a person who is a leader of a movement 
of 24,000 households, that's about 100,000 people, is probably bigger than any Hasidic movement today. So Rabbi Akiva was a leader of a movement of 24,000 households, and if he wanted to give a speech, he probably needed to fill a stadium or a few stadiums. And within one month, he loses all of those students. He goes from you know, 100 to zero in almost no time at all. And what does he do? He goes ahead and finds five new students from addressing stadiums to giving a class around the table, really around the dining room table. And he still picks himself up and he goes ahead and finds five students and teaches them the Torah. And these are the five students who pass on and define the Torah tradition from their time until now, almost 2,000 years later. And what Rabbi Akiva symbolizes is resilience, the ability to pick yourself up and rebirth yourself. But actually, if we go back to the story of Rabbi Akiva, we will find this coming up time and time again, because Rabbi Akiva's parents were converts. They were his parents or grandparents, doesn't really matter. They originally were converts. They found something in the Jewish tradition that they found interesting and fascinating. And they decided to recreate themselves to start from scratch in a completely new tradition, in a completely new community, to take everything they knew about their life, put it aside, and start a new in a new tradition and community. And in the Jewish tradition, a convert is considered to be like a baby because really, when he comes into the Jewish tradition, he or she really starts their life all over again in a completely different environment, in a completely different headspace. And they have to learn a lot of things from scratch. And people who converted to Judaism really have a lot of work to do to really understand this whole new space and atmosphere and environment and mentality. And it's true for immigrants from one country to another. And it's also true for converts. And it's really true for anybody who is entering a new cultural environment. You sort of have to remember everything you knew until now and learn a lot of things all over again. Rabbi Zaira, who is one of the great Talmudic scholars, said that when he left Babylonia, and came to the land of Israel, he fasted 40 fasts to forget the Torah of Babylon and learn the Torah of Israel. So there's a big change, and Rabbi Akiva comes from a stock of people who reinvented themselves and decided to embrace a new tradition. But then Rabbi Akiva himself, until the age of 40, he was a shepherd. He was illiterate. He did not know the letters of the alphabet. And still, at the age of 40, he married a young woman by the name of Rachel. And Rachel made a, a condition that she would marry him if he would go and learn Torah. So at the age of 40, he goes to start learning together with his son in the Heder, in the first grade, learning how to read, how to actually learn the alphabet, and then learn how to read. And then he becomes this great scholar who has 24,000 students. So he made a change, and a huge change in his life when he was 40. And it wasn't just an intellectual change. Rabbi Akiva writes, or says to his students, that before he learned Torah, he hated Torah scholars. 
he hated them so much that if he could, he would have bite, bitten them the bite of a donkey. And why donkey? Because when a donkey bites somebody, the donkey breaks the bones. So Rabbi Akiva hated the taller scholars so much that he wanted to break their bones. But then once he started learning Torah, he actually became a Torah scholar himself. And not only that, but he became a leader of 24,000 Torah scholars. And then after those passed away, the leader of the five Torah scholars who took this Torah and made it the Torah for generations. So the message of Lagba Omer, the message that we really need to imbibe as we're sort of two-thirds of the way between Passover and Shavuot, as we are on our way to getting the Torah, is that there's always going to be crisis. In any ascent, in any place that you're trying to get to, in anything that you try to build or create, there's always going to be crisis. And this our ability to overcome this crisis, to reinvent ourselves, to pivot, to find another way to do things, not to give up, that is essential for being able to get to our destination. And notice that this day, like Omer, doesn't fall in the beginning of the counting. It's we're two-thirds of the way there already. But this is when we celebrate the Jewish people's tremendous, tremendous resilience and find this resilience inside ourselves. Now, Lagba Omer is also a day on which we celebrate the life of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai um, spoke out against the Roman Empire and the Roman rulers of Israel, and there was a death sentence that was put on him, and he escaped together with his son, Rabbi Eliezer. They escaped to a cave in a town of Pekin, and they spent 12 years hiding in this cave. Miraculously, there was a tree that grew, a carob tree that grew by the cave, and there was a spring of water near the cave, so they would eat carobs and drink water from um, the spring. And, this is, and they spent 12 years learning Torah in this cave. Now, when they came out of the cave, they looked at the people around them, and they saw them doing mundane you know, just day in, day out kind of things. And they got really angry and they looked at somebody who was plowing and they killed him. So God said, go back into the cave. What did you come out to, to destroy my world? So they went back for a year and they came out and Rabbi Lazar still couldn't, couldn't stomach the fact that people were just doing mundane, banal things. And Rabbi, Rabbi Shimon would actually fix whatever he would hurt. So once again, there is a little bit of the same message here. Whether we blame the Romans for this or we um, attribute it to divine will, certainly it was God's will that Rabbi Shimon would spend 12 years in a cave. It was really a 12-year jail sentence, so, so to speak. Of course, it was a holy jail where he was learning Torah, but it was a way of God to basically removing Rabbi Shimon from interacting with the world for 12 years. And after he came out of this quote-unquote uh, jail sentence, he couldn't relate to the world. He couldn't be part of the world and interact with, him, with the world. So he had to go back to the, jail, to the jail, to the cave, for another year to learn again how to interact correctly 
with the world. There was something about Rabbi Shimon's approach, which is really the Kabbalistic approach, that was not compatible 100% with the way the world was presenting itself. Rabbi Shimon could not appreciate the, manda the mundane and infuse it with holiness in a way. And the whole teaching of Kabbalah, which is what Rabbi Shimon actually developed in the cave or wrote down, brought down, was how to see the holy in the mundane, how to understand that this world is really just a reflection of holiness, of God's creation. And Kabbalah is really a text. It's not a text, it's a, it's a language. It's a metaphysical language of how the world really works. And our work in this world today, in order to bring Geulite, in order to bring redemption, is to understand how the world works on this metaphysical level through the teachings of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai as have been popularized by the Hasidic movement and then to reintegrate them in how we relate to the world. And this is something that is brought in this week's Torah portion. This week's Torah portion starts with the laws of Kohanim, of priests, who can they defile themselves for. For example, if a Kohen is um, especially a high Kohen, a holy priest, a chief priest, if, he, if one of his uh, family members die, can he accompany that family member's uh, burial uh, procession? What about a real Kohen? Can he participate in the burial of one of his um, family members? And the answer is that a regular Kohen can only participate in the burial of his seven closest relatives, his mother, father, spouse, brother, unmarried sister, or wife. And um, a high priest cannot participate in any burial. He can sort of follow it from afar because the idea is that priests are not private individuals. They have a job. They have um, a calling they are completely and totally dedicated to the people that they serve. And so, in a way, as hard as it is, they need to transcend their own grief. So for a regular Kohen, he can participate in the grief and the burial of his seven closest relatives, but the high priest really cannot participate in any burial because he's a completely public figure, and his entire life is given over to serving the people. So the Jewish people are a mamlechet koanim, where a nation of priests. And this is a lesson that doesn't just apply to the kohanim in the temple. It's a lesson that applies to all of us. We have obviously a private life and, of course, close personal relationships and grief and mourning. And we have to be human and feel these emotions. Very often people will just shut off the emotions and just think that they're so holy, but actually they're not holy, they're just hurt, and they're shutting off their emotions. So, of course, on the one hand, we're private individuals, we're people with emotions, and we have to feel these emotions, and we have to apply them to our relationships. But there's another dimension in which we have to see ourselves as public individuals, and each, even each person in their own vicinity, in their own area, you don't have to become a public figure, but there is a certain dimension of your life as a Jew in which you are being uh, a Kohen. You're being there to serve others. 
in whatever ways works for you, in whatever context works for you. And in that way, you have to transcend the boundaries of being a private individual. So this is a lesson and that always sometimes calls us to transcend our own personal crisis, to reinvent ourselves, to come through situations that could be hard, like Rabbi Akiva. But Rabbi Akiva understood that he cannot bury himself with the death of his 24 students, 1,000 students. He had to reinvent himself because he had a job to do for the Jewish people. And this is a message to all of us. If you see yourself as a pro public individual, as somebody who has a job to do for the world, even in your own small way, then yes, you will have crises and difficult situations and grief. But after we are angry and after we grieve and mourn, we have to be able to spring back and reinvent ourselves and have that resilience to do our job, to go forward and reach Shavuot, the giving of the Torah. So with this idea, I would like to sign off for this week. And I hope that you can find ways to apply this teaching in your own life. And with that, it was news from the Torah. And I am Leah Aroni. See you next week.